The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Light. Lord must want me to preach this sermon. Well, let's turn our attention to God's Word as we continue to worship Him. God addresses us in His Word. We are in Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20 this morning. We've been making our way through this book, Galatians 4, getting in verse 8 through verse 20. Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. Let's give our attention now to God speaking to us in His holy and inspired word. <clears throat> Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. <clears throat> But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, <clears throat> how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to, once, to be once more? You have served days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Well, this concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now grant the power of his spirit to illumine this text and attend the preaching of his word. Well, it's interesting to read prisoner of war stories, and you can access them on the Library of Congress. And uh, I was reading one such story of a 381st bomber named Major Milton Stern. While fighting in World War II, his plane was shot down in March of 1944 over Holland. He was captured, and he was sent to a German prison camp. There, uh, they gave him small bags of food uh, consisting of dehydrated vegetables, and there was one loaf of bread, which consisted of 50% sawdust that was to be divided up among seven men. Obviously, terrible conditions. Uh, they lost quite a bit of weight, as you can imagine. However, they were rescued. And when they were rescued, they went to Camp Lucky Strike 
where he said they had steaks and all the eggnog that you could want. Now, can you imagine after being rescued from captivity and finally being able to have a good meal and good treatment saying, I want to go back into captivity in the German camp. That would be preposterous. But this is exactly what is going on with the Galatians. Uh, after being rescued from spiritual captivity, in slavery to Satan, in slavery to the law as a covenant of works, do this if you want to live. Do this for life. Do this if you want to avoid judgment. They want to go back to that. They want to go back into slavery. They wanted to go back under the law and work their way into God's favor. And this is why Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians. And in today's passage, we see two passionate pleas that Paul makes to the Galatians to this end. First, privilege. Second, a personal note. So first, appealing to the privilege that they have in Christ. And he begins with, from what they were delivered. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So before talking about their privileged status, Paul reminds them of their condition while in slavery, while in the German camp, if you will. Really? Like the Israelites when they were in Egypt. It reminds them this is the way it used to be for them. It reminds them that when they did not know God, they were enslaved to those things which are not God's by nature. That is, they're not real. They're not real deities or powers. They're idols, created things that man worships and serves as their rock rather than the Creator. And they were enslaved to them, enslaved to their idols. We do not understand slavery today. Uh, we, when we feel like we're stuck in a job, uh, we think that that's what it means to be stuck, but even then we can still get out of it. But back in their day, if you were a slave, you were truly stuck. There was no getting out of it. It was like when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. There was no rising up and fighting Pharaoh and getting out of their condition. They were truly stuck and had no hope except for the grace of God rescuing them. This is what we were before knowing God. Slaves to our idols. Slaves to sin. Stuck to these masters without any power to deliver ourselves. And the reason we were enslaved is because we did not know God. As Paul says here in our verse, in verse 8, we were in slavery when we did not know God. Paul says of unbelievers in another letter in Ephesians 4, 18-19, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And they, having become callous, 
have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says that the reason they walk in sin is because of the ignorance in them. Ignorance of God. The Apostle John says in 3 John 11, whoever does evil has not seen God. Now this doesn't mean that the one who does evil hasn't visibly seen God as if God needs to appear to them in the sky or in their closet or something like that. Rather, this is referring to spiritual sight. Not seeing who God is by faith. They have not seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. They have not seen the light of the Gospel believing within that He is a good God. So good that He would send His only begotten Son to be born of a woman. To be born under the law. Let this never escape our amazement that God became a man conceived in a womb developed for nine months like us in every way except for sin. That He came under the law to fulfill the law for us. To do what we should have done but failed to do and therefore can no longer do. He did. And that He bore that wrath on the cross for us. This is who our God is. Is He not a good God? Merciful and gracious? And when we know God, when we come to know Him, it's not that we just intellectually assent to this. It's that we see the glory of this. That we see the light of the Gospel. The one who does not see God worships idols. Gives his heart to idols, trusting in them for deliverance. Trusting in them to be that rock. Trying to find satisfaction in created things rather than in the God for whom he or she was made. And so he or she is enslaved to these idols until his eyes are open to see the glory of God, the light of the Gospel in the face of Christ. And this is why Paul goes on to say in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So we see here that the turning point away from slavery to idols is knowing God. That is having one's eyes open to see that He is altogether good. Seeing Him as our God through the light of the Gospel. Leading us to truly loving and delighting in Him. Seeing Him as our rock. Being convinced within our hearts that this is so. Now Paul stops in his tracks before moving on and gives the flip side of the coin. He says, or rather to be known by God. Now Paul's not correcting himself as if to say, well actually a scratch that, you didn't come to know God. But rather he is giving the reason why they have come to know God. He is emphasizing that it's actually God's work. 
that you have been known by God. If I carry in a, a dish for the, the fellowship meal, and somebody asks, you know, what did you bring? I usually tell them what's in the dish if I know what it is. Say, well, it's it's such and such a meal. But then I'll respond, or rather what my wife brought. If I was going to bring something, probably like Hot Pockets you throw in the microwave. But because my wife made this meal, I have something to bring in. Well, if God did not know us, that is foreknow us, then we would not know God. Why is that? Because by nature we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, if you ever gone up to a dead person and try to talk to them and try to get them to do something, you did. I know good mental services for you. That's because a dead person can do what? Nothing. And that's the point in Paul saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could do nothing. Nothing of spiritual good. We cannot know God apart from Him first knowing us. Now for God to know us does not mean that God has a general knowledge of our existence or what we would do. No in Scripture is used of a special relationship, a particular and exclusive love reserved for His people. So for example, Genesis 4 says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and had a child. It doesn't mean that he knew something she would do, but rather expressed this special exclusive love reserved only for the covenant of marriage. Well, this special exclusive love God has for His covenant people is also expressed in Scripture by the word no. In Amos 3.2, God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. This doesn't mean that God only knew that Israel existed and did not know about other families or nations of the earth as if an angel came up to God and said, Hey, did you hear about the Canaanites? And God said, Oh, no, who, tell me about them. That's obviously absurd. God is all-knowing. God doesn't learn anything. Rather, this is referring to His special love and relationship with His covenant people. Setting His special and particular love on them. And so Jesus says in John 14, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. Again, this doesn't mean that God has no knowledge of anything or anyone else, but rather this is a special relationship reserved for His covenant people. Scripture's terminology is to use the word know to refer to this. And so that's what Paul is referring to here in our verse. But as Paul goes on to say, if this is the case, then why would they turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world 
whose slaves you want to be once more. He talks about them observing Jewish ceremonial old covenant days and seasons. Now remember from last time what elementary principles of the world refers to. It refers to basically an unfulfilled covenant of works, this works principle. God created the world for man to have a purpose, and that purpose was to obtain eternal life with God, dwelling in his presence forever. And God made a covenant with Adam, our first father, where he was to work in keeping God's commandments, even under a test in order to obtain eternal life. This was the basic works principle for the world, for this creation in our first head. Well, man failed to obtain this. Adam failed to obtain this and was kicked out of the garden and sent into exile. And since Adam was our representative, we in him were also thrust out of the garden in exile and slavery to sin. But this basic works principle was then republished in the law of Moses in the Old Covenant. It was a covenant that said, obey my commandments if you want to live long in the land and not be thrust out of this special land like Adam and Eve were. However, they too failed. God added several ceremonial laws that involved certain days, months, festivals uh, dictated by new moons and years, such as the year of Jubilee a reflection of what uh, Adam was given and not eating from the tree. And so God just expanded that and said, don't eat these things. But Israel's utter failure to obey God was clear evidence to the world that we are not able to do this. And that's why God made this covenant with Israel to show us the greatness of our sin and misery and our inability to keep God's commandments because we have fallen in Adam and this was meant to point to Christ. And this is why Paul calls them weak and worthless. And that's why it pointed to Christ, the true and better Adam, the second Adam, the true Israelite who came to do what the first Adam failed to do. He fulfilled that covenant of works. He fulfilled that works principle. He was born under the law. He did this and lived. And we, in Him, get credit for this obedience. And He got credit for our law-breaking, becoming a curse for us. All of this was to point to Christ. All those sacrifices, all those ceremonial dressings of the Old Covenant pointed to Christ, our great high priest who would offer up Himself, who would fulfill the law, who would bring us into that better promised land. So Paul saying, don't you get it? Why would you go back to the Old Covenant when it points us to Christ who has come and fulfilled all righteousness for us? Now, this may seem to be inconsistent with their return to pagan idolatry. I want you to notice this here. Paul says that when you did not know God, you were enslaved to idols. But now that you know God, why do you turn back again to the worthless elementary principles of the world? So the train of thought here is that to go from slaves of idols and then to turn back again to the elementary principles of the world is to go back to pagan idolatry. 
So Paul associates pagan idolatry with the elementary principles of the world. But then Paul says that they have done this by observing days, months, and years, which he also associates with the elementary principles of the world. And given the context of Galatians, these days and seasons and so forth refer to Old Covenant ceremonial observances. So how is observing these Jewish Old Covenant things which God gave turning back to their pagan idolatry? Well, we need to keep in mind that pagan idolatry back in that day involved trying to appease unpredictable, angry gods. It wasn't that these deities just accept people and bless them freely. Our, our gods today is, is that. But back then, they viewed deities as not happy with them, filled with passions and emotions, and that they needed to be appeased. And I think it reflects a cognition of guilt. You need to do something in order to be blessed by the gods and avoid being cursed by them. If they wanted to be blessed with rain, a good harvest, abundance of provision, fertility, long life, health, avoiding diseases, they had to do certain rituals, even up to sacrificing their own children in order to protect them and bless them. This is why to be under the law as a covenant of works, the old covenant is like being enslaved to these idols. You have to perform to please. I have to do in order to inherit the blessing of life. It's really the same principle, a works principle. It's just a pagan expression of it. We also see this in legalism where people add to what God requires in order to advance in righteousness. In Colossians 2, 20-23, Paul actually says rules such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch are the elementary principles of the world. It's thinking that by keeping rules, one becomes more righteous. I advance in righteousness. I'm in a better state by keeping these extra rules. And it gives a false sense of security and confidence to the rule keeper. What this is not, though, what this does not lead to is drawing near to God, delighting in Him as our loving Heavenly Father. What this results in is not meditating on, delighting in, and rejoicing in God as our covenant God and we as His covenant people. It's not a heart that says, Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Oh, the old covenant, the law as a covenant of works does not produce this. Rather, God is seen as a hard master who just wants to restrict us with rules, who's not merciful and gracious, but cold and distant and withholding until we get our act together. And this leads not to a joyful life of praise to God, but a joyless life where one is constantly burdened 
having to turn an eye, a blind eye to their sin in order to deal with a guilty conscience, much grumbling and complaining, rather than giving of thanks. And so Paul was perplexed that the Galatians would return to such a state. He says in verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He is saying that he fears that this that his labors of preaching the gospel to them will actually turn out to bear no fruit among them. He fears that they are like the plant in Jesus' parable where they sprout for a season, but then fall away because of trials and temptations of this world showing that they were never truly converted to begin with. And so he continues his passionate pleading which brings us to the second one. But we just saw their privileged status. Second, a personal plea. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. So Paul's referring to this ministry principle in 1 Corinthians 9, where it becomes all things to all people in order to win them over for the gospel. To the Gentiles, he became a Gentile and that he set aside the Jewish practices that he would uh, perform in front of Jews uh, to win them over. But with the Gentiles, he ate and drank with them foods that were, that were unclean for the Jews. And now he is asking them to return the favor, as it were, by becoming like him. In setting aside the Jewish practices they had recently undertook and to walk in the same freedom from Jewish ceremonial laws that Paul walked in with them. And he continues his personal pleading in uh, with them by recounting their care of him. In verses 12 to 14, he says, You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So Paul recounts that they did him no wrong when he initially encountered them, and they took care of him. He had some sort of bodily ailment. What it was, we don't know. Any sort of explanation would just be conjecture. But it was the occasion for Paul having to stop in Galatia. And in God's sovereignty, he used that. It's an opportunity for the Galatians to hear the gospel through Paul. And even though it was a trial and burden for them, they did not despise Paul. Back in that day, if you had some sort of ailment, if you had some sort of disease, you were seen as cursed or demon-possessed, and so people would despise you and want to keep their distance from you. But this is not how they viewed Paul. Rather than rejecting him as a demon, as having a demon, they received him as though he were an angel, as though he were Jesus himself. They showed Paul such love, warmth, and care that it would look no different if it was an angel, if he was an angel, or if he were Jesus himself. In fact, verse 15 says that they would have even given their eyes for him which was deemed one of the most important organs of the body. They recognized the value of Paul as a messenger who brought them the good news and treated him with the utmost respect. 
And so Paul asks in verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? And Paul is saying, where did the blessedness in our relationship go? What changed? What happened that you would go from willing, me, willing to give me your eyes to now eyeing me as your enemy? He asks in verse 16, is it because I told you the truth that you now deem me as your enemy? Now, this is obviously a ridiculous notion because this is why they eagerly received him to begin with, leading them to treat him with such honor and love. Well, Paul's saying, my message didn't change. The truth didn't change. So what changed? Well, Paul gives the answer in verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Paul now turns to address the real issue here. It is the false teachers. He says that they want to make much of them. That is, the false teachers want to speak highly of the Galatians, but they do not do so for a good purpose, but rather an evil and wicked one. They are simply flattering them in order that the Galatians might return the favor and make much out of them. They want them to follow their agenda, agenda bolster their ego, give them praise. But the minute you stop doing their will and exalting them, it's when they turn on you. When they try to shut the Galatians out from the Apostle Paul, isolate them from Paul by speaking evil of him so as to get them to turn against Paul and be on their side. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 18, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. So Paul says it is good to be made much of when it's for a good purpose, not with an ulterior motive of trying to get something out of someone. Now this being made much of is not in an idolatrous sense, but in the sense of how they highly appreciated and valued Paul when they took care of him, when he was there, when they received him as an angel, as Jesus himself. But they only did it when he was present with them but they turned against him when he was gone. As Paul goes on to say at the end of this verse, and not only when I am present with you. Thus he is implying that they shared in the same hypocrisy as the false teachers. But Paul's intentions are different than that of the false teachers. In verse 19 he says, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul does not want to make much of them for a bad purpose so that they return the favor. Rather, he wants them to make much of Christ. He wants Christ formed in them. He wants them conformed to the image of Christ. He wants them to not be back under the laws and covenant of works, back into slavery. Rather, he wants them to walk in the freedom that is found in Christ as dearly beloved sons. And because of this, rather than putting them back under the law like the false teachers were doing, he wanted them to remember once again the gospel and be conformed into the image of Christ. That is why Paul is not their enemy, because he preaches to them the good news. 
And in fatherly and pastoral affection, Paul says in verse 20 that he wishes he could be there so that perhaps they would once again have fond affection for him and his ministry, that his tone may be changed. His tone from, oh, foolish Galatians, would be changed. And as application, this is what this is the way pastors should be. I don't want to escape that we have application as well. Not trying to be made much of, but rather to make much of Jesus by pointing to his all-sufficient gospel, by pointing his people to his sufficient work and the gospel of all grace, by presenting Christ and him crucified, proclaiming him and not ourselves, not our laws that you need to follow if you want to be like us, but rather presenting Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants. By preaching the gospel so that as God's people behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, that is how we see His glory. It's in the gospel, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, that as you behold His glory in the gospel, you are transformed. We are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. It should be the greatest concern of pastors that Christ is formed in God's people, that they reflect His image and not theirs. Notice the language Paul uses here, too. I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, I heard through the grapevine that giving birth is excruciating. But I'm no expert. But imagine having to go through childbirth twice for the same child. Well, this is what Paul is going through. He says, again, in the pain of childbirth, I brought you the gospel. I want you to believe it and see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now I'm burdened again for that. It is deeply painful and burdensome to see the people for whom you care and love, the people whose souls God has entrusted to us, to see them strain. It's like one of your own children strain into danger. This is the heart that God has given to those whom He has appointed to shepherd His people's souls. Not to shrug it off or laugh about it, but to be in pains of childbirth. There's a pastor I know named Alex Montoya. He would go to his congress, if any one of his members missed, he would show up at their house afterwards, unannounced, to preach that sermon that he preached that same day. I'm thinking about it. (laughs) I don't know if that's going to be good or bad. Oh man, I better come or, hey, well, if I don't come, he'll just come preach the sermon here. The reason... We call. The reason we show up, the reason we follow up, is because we care. Because 
there's that pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I know in our day, especially in America, I'm independent, leave me alone, let me do my own thing. But that's not the way it is in the church. God has appointed for you those who watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And those who are appointed to do so are in pains of childbirth as they care for your soul. So recognize that. Cooperate with us. And this also applies to all of us in here. We all need to love one another and treat one another the way the Galatians treated Paul when he first came. We need to welcome one another the way we would welcome Christ. Not in the sense of worshiping the saints, but in the sense that all his members, all those who are in Christ are members of his body. Just as Christ said to the Apostle Paul on that road to Damascus, Paul, by, by persecuting my body, you're persecuting me. So to show love to Christ's body is to show love to Christ himself. As he told the sheep in Matthew 25 and fi at final judgment, whatever you have done for the least of these brothers of mine, you have done unto me. We need to see the members of his body as the apple of his eye. Not as annoyances to be avoided. We're here to, to serve us. So who hasn't talked to me? Who hasn't ministered to me? Can you imagine what kind of church we'd be if we all thought like that? Oh, how are people going to serve me today? Coming to be served rather than to serve? Like Christ did? Even when people sin against us? And is this not how Christ has dealt with us? Did He not love us by giving Himself up for us? He saw our sin and what did He do? He didn't back away repulsed by it. Rather, He pitied us. Rather than saying, I don't want to mess with your burden. You burden me too much. He took on our greatest burden and gave Himself up for us on the cross. He bore our heaviest burdens of our sin and guilt and shame in His body on the tree. He came under the law and fulfilled the whole law for us so that we would not once again be under the bondage and slavery of the law as a covenant of works, but rather free to walk in the newness of life we have received in serving one another. And so, brothers and sisters, let us always remember that we are sons and never go back to being slaves under the law as a covenant of works. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for this very thing, that we would see the light of the gospel once again that we would love and serve one another mutually. That rather than thinking about how we can be served, we would come here with a mindset of how we may serve out of an outflow of how Christ has so loved us. And if there's any in here who are strained, oh God, would you bring them back? Would they find 
no satisfaction in this world because it's nothing but idols. We'll never satisfy. Deliver them from this false belief that says, I need to find a rock in this world. May they see Christ as the rock and Redeemer. Whoever puts his trust in you, as you say, will never be put to shame, will never be disappointed. Open up their eyes. Let them see Christ, O God. We are helpless. We are helpless until you do open up our eyes. May they know you so that they may be delivered from the idols to which they are enslaved, this dying and perishing world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.